the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. (laughs) Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to talk with uh, an author of a, of a new book, interesting story, Black Sheep, Story of Abandonment, Belonging, Racism, and Redemption. It's written by uh, Ray Studevant, who joins me now by phone. Hi, Ray. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Tom. How are you? Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I'm doing well. I was I was reading something about the book. It says, Black Sheep, a blue-eyed Negro speaks of abandonment, belonging, racism, and redemption. And you offer a, a unique story as a biracial boy growing up in Washington, D.C. Um, <laughs> do you have blue eyes? Uh, yeah, very blue, actually. <laughs> that's that's interesting, yeah. and I and I only zero in on that because uh, we have a regular pundit on our uh, political roundtable uh, every Wednesday, um, who's black and has blue eyes, and it's very unusual. So, <laughs> to meet two <laughs> in a lifetime yeah. seems a little bit strange. But um, you were biracial, but you didn't grow up in the home you were born in how did what what happened there well my biological mother was was uh, unfortunately she uh, could never kick a heroin addict uh she was an heroin addict couldn't kick the problem and then my father was um uh, an alcoholic so they just had issues and they both were on the streets at 12 years old themselves so they didn't and they had no business having me as a child but we're talking mid-60s and heroin and Drugs, uh, uh, the drugs had really, really portrayed uh, the streets of most major cities. You were born into a party. 
Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean to make light of it, Ray. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it was quite, yeah. yeah but that so was okay. but that was their mindset. Yeah. Yeah, and um, they, and you have to understand, the mid-60s, interracial liaisons and relationships, it was a different time. And fortunately, you know, Washington, D.C. was on the Mason-Dixon line. So you had Virginia, which was right across the 14th Street Bridge. I mean, Virginia was, you know, slave state. So it was an interesting dynamic because uh, slavery, I mean, not slavery, but the interracial marriage was not even, I think, uh, legalized in, in Virginia. I think it was Harding or Love, that one uh, uh, monumental case, I think in 66 or 67. So it wasn't very common at that time also. And, and yet... Washington, D.C. is the nation's capital, which should be uh, the seat of all coming together. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the, at that time, it was uh, known pretty much as Chocolate City. Now, it, uh, it was the blackest city in America. Now, I know Mich Detroit, Flint, maybe Harlem has something to say about that now. But back then, it was predominantly black. And the joke was the only thing that was white was the president and the White House and Georgetown. <laughs> Notice everything else was pretty much black. <laughs> but what was it like for you? Because you were biracial. Is the experience different or part black, all black? No. The, the, the reason my situation was a little bit different because you could not look at me. I look like you, Tom. Forget what you see on the book cover. If you look at the author and you look at me now, I just looked white. And if I did not have what they call the student gap in my teeth, everyone questioned. And at that time, there was no DNA testing, but I, you know, DNA testing. But I looked just like my father. And he was more of a Terrence Howard kind of complexion. And it was funny because the doctors that said years later said that uh, sometimes heroin can cause a woman's body not to, the, the, uh, um, body not to produce melanin, mm. I think. Through the, through the uh, pituitary gland. But for all intents and purposes, I could pass for white easily. And without you, I mean, and that was what made this story so interesting or different and unique because even most biracial kids, you can look at them and tell. But with me, no one could tell. Did you, um, did you try to pass, as they say? Well, <laughs> with... with Neighbors and friends and even my sisters uh, with curling up my hair. I had finger waves. I had crimps. I had everything to make me try to look more black, per se. Um, so, you, you, like with every child, you get in where you fit in. But it wasn't until I left, because basically I was orphaned, and that's where my aunt, the woman on the cover of the book, comes in. Well, when you go to, see, I grew up in D.C., and people that know Washington, D.C., there's a distinction between Washington and D.C. D.C. is, as most cities have, you have a, a river, a bridge, a, uh, a train track, something that separates either the haves, the have-nots, the blacks, the white, however, whatever the demographic is. So when you went to, I grew up in D.C., which was an acronym for, I don't know, don't come, dead cops, Dodge City. It was that side of town. So when I went over there, I mean, even today, you would not dare have um you wouldn't have a white bus driver taxi cab well you couldn't get a taxi cab over there now anyway but uh trash man you probably never would see a white cop so it was that side of town so to look as white as i was i mean it it, it uh yeah, it brought about some problems for sure but 
I'd rather have had that than to be in a drug house and be in an orphanage or bounced around from house to house. So I, it was the, 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 the lesser of two bad situations for sure. And when you say the lesser of two bad situations, it sounds like your aunt um, really was uh, kind of a hero in this story for taking you in and raising you. Yeah, yeah, she was. She was absolutely incredible because what happened was she grew up in a city just south of Jackson between Macomb's, uh, what's Macomb's, uh, Bo Diddley's hometown. She grew up in Crystal Springs, about halfway between Jackson and Macomb's in a place called Crystal Springs, Mississippi. And she had grew up in the Jim Crow. She's my great aunt. And so she grew up in the Jim Crow era, 30s and 40s. So she had an issue, obviously, with white people, but specifically white men with blue eyes had traumatized her as a child. And now, and legend has it that somebody told her that if you don't get if you continue to harborage some of this resentment towards people with blue eyes the lord is going to set you straight and lo and behold here i am at her door at, to set her straight so to speak but it wasn't the case but she was it's her memoir the story's really not about me it's about her and her and i it, it's it's i mean the story had so many different components you know alzheimer's race adoption, mixed-race kids, but in essence, it's a love story between an aunt and a nephew that becomes a mother and son, and her issues as a child with white people became an issue as this adopted kid with black people, so she had to basically go to bat and go to bat for me on numerous occasions to defend me against racist black people who had a problem obviously because uh, as white as i was it was just a difficult time and you got to remember that was the time of uh i mean just after the black power movement uh you know the you know what's going on marvin Gaye, who grew up five minutes from us i mean it was it was that time you know afros and you know say it loud i'm black and i'm proud so there was that movement going on in the early 70s and here you are thrust in in in, in, in the crux of that and having to survive, and so she was my hero, no doubt about it, because the reason why she adopted me was because it, her brother dies in Mississippi. We go to the funeral. A few days later, her husband drops dead right in front of us, my uncle. Then a few months later, her father dies. So now she has no husband, her brother dies, and her father dies. Now she has to make a decision. Because I was only her nephew by marriage. And so she had to decide, am I going to adopt this blue-eyed white kid whose birth certificate says he's black in the blackest city in America? And I'm going to have this rascal looking at me with these devilish blue eyes. <laughs> and, and you can imagine what was going through her mind. <laughs> well, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it was... Um, the stories, uh, and I didn't initially, you know, want to tell the story, but what happened was there was a, the widow of, uh, of a singer asked me to ghostwrite, um, um, the bio. And the reason she chose me over another, another, uh, a number of other writers was because she had a similar situation. And when she read some of my stories, she, you know, and, and talked to the agent, she says, okay, that guy can relate to bright light passing for white because she had a black mother and a white father and so 
after I wrote that, my agent says, listen, because we'd been working on some other writing projects. He said, listen, you need to slam on brakes. This is too compelling. And, and, and you know, my mother scared me, said, listen, one of the first things you learn in a black house, you don't put our business out in the street. I don't care what. <laughs> so <laughs> I was never really, I never really wanted to do that. But it was at her, when she got the Alzheimer's. And she was stage four, stage five, so you always think you got time to make it right because as the story goes, I mean, as you read it, you'll see that there was ups and downs, and I disappointed her before I finally got it together in life, and I never really got the chance to thank her the way I really wanted to. I never gave her the due I felt mm-hmm. that she deserved. And when I went back, and she had Alzheimer's, and she, didn't, she just didn't recognize me. And you can imagine Trying to imagine you, Tom, you go to go to the somewhere in Flint and you walk into an old black woman's house and say, Hey, I, I'm your son. And she has <laughs> Alzheimer's. And you try to convince her. That, <laughs> <laughs> you try to convince a southern black woman that you're her son and you're, you know, as white as the day snow. So, anyway, um, it was, and so then I gave a speech at her funeral. And as her casket sat about two feet, two feet away, as I'm telling these stories between her and I, because she had two daughters, which were my cousins, but in essence, my sisters. And they, you know, we, we, I told some of the stories of her and I, because they were a little older, so they had gone away to college. And, and so it dawned on me just how incredible she really was and what she had overcome to decide to adopt me and deal with her own demons Again, for white people, and we, we had a lot of, as I, as, as when they moved away, we got closer, and, and so I, um, you know, we just had so many stories, I mean, I, I, I tell, well, I'll let you go, I'm, I'm talking too much, I'll let you, you're the, I'm, I'm rambling on. No, 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 that, this is fine, I, one of the things about hosting a, uh, an interview show is it's nice when you get people who actually do talk, <laughs> instead of just yes and no but let me ask you this because we have to go to break in about a minute and and i hope you'll stick around for a few minutes and and we can talk some more um but uh but let me ask this very quickly is your hair straight yeah it's pretty straight yeah it's a it's a little wavy but it can be straightened pretty easy that picture on the cover that's not that's not representative of what i look like now it's pretty straight yeah Mm -hmm. okay yep well, yeah, there's um, no pee, there's no there's no curliness to it. It's a little slight wave or whatever, but uh, for the most part, it's it's pretty straight. Yeah. Well, um, as I as I mentioned, we do have to take a short break here. But my uh, my guest is Ray Studevant. He is the author of uh, Black Sheep: Story of Abandonment, Belonging, Racism, and Redemption. And we're going to talk some more about that and his experiences uh, after we. Let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in uh, edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV 92.1 FM, our voices radio in Flint. They're a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. And uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. But then, uh, then we'll return to our conversation with Ray Studevant about his uh, book, Black Sheep. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We've got lots more straight ahead. Everybody's doing. 
it on brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, 
a magical place with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of a uh, new book called Black Sheep, Story of Abandonment, Belonging, Racism, and Redemption. His name is Ray Studevant. Ray, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no, it's okay, Tom. It's my pleasure. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. Um, Ray, this story is, is uh, in part about your aunt who took you in at what, age five? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, and she raised you. Did you end up going to college? No, that was uh, actually part of the disappointment because everything was set up for me to do that, and that is the re- one of the main reasons why I ended up writing the book because I knew I'd always sensed the disappointment in her eyes over the years, and that's one of the reasons why I left D.C. because yeah, I, I just and there's an episode of there when I'm at Howard university visiting some of my friends and a number of my friends had gone Howard. I'd been accepted to Howard, Morehouse. I thought I was going to more, but I just, yeah. So things just kind of went off, went off the rails, uh, at that time. And my, uh, biological mother peeked back in and it just, oh, it was a mess. So that was one of the biggest regrets I had in life. And so I wanted to make it right eventually. And, uh, and when I started to be successful financially, it didn't really matter how much money or how many bills. You know, I remember I first started to, one day uh, I went and rented a Mercedes stretch limo. I took her around D.C. on a shopping spree, and I did everything I could because I'd finally started to really, you know, make my strides in, in, in the brokerage industry. But it just wasn't, I didn't do it the way she wanted me to do it. And it never set right with her or me. And, um, yeah, so I never went to college. My sisters, they went. Uh, a lot of my family went to, went to uh, all kinds of universities, but a lot of them went to uh, HBCUs. But that was one of the biggest things that disappointed her in me, for sure. How old mm-hmm. were you when you left D.C.? 19. 19. And for where? Yeah. Well, I went briefly to New York. Then... Um, Los Angeles, and uh, from Los Angeles, ended up uh, San Diego, Miami, almost a full circle, then back to San Diego because my, um, in my travels, I had a daughter that lived in San Diego. So the interesting thing was when I lived in Miami, I thought it was that that would bring me happiness, being having the cars that I always wanted, but I, uh, ironically, Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor's first, I think it was his first wife, Flynn Pryor, was, lived not too far from me. Ironically, Italian dad, black mom, Flynn Pryor, was a neighbor of mine in, in, in Florida. And she was one of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I had studied the Bible before. I ended up, at that point, becoming one of Jehovah's Witnesses. So I leave Miami, leave that lifestyle, go back to raise my daughter, and to be, you know, have a, a presence in her life, even though she was in my life, it's not the same when they're jet setting back and forth. Right. And, uh, yeah, so I, 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 because I knew what it felt like to be an abandoned child, even though I wasn't abandoning her, I still, as the old saying goes, your presence 
as in CE presence, uh, are much more important than your presence as far as gifts. And so I went back and, and, and did the best I could as far as uh, helping her mother raise her. Mm-hmm. And, and Ray, where are you now? South of France, Nice. <laughs> nice, France. Mm-hmm. Do you live there or are you vacationing? Yes. No, I live, I've been here uh, a couple of years. Yeah. So what happened here was, uh, as you know, I'm sure you know as Jehovah's Witnesses, we knocked on your door, but there was a lot of Nigerian refugees who had come here. So I came over to help uh, uh, to preach to some of the refugees and um, didn't know how long I was going to stay. So I've been here about almost two and a half years. And, uh, you know, obviously it's uh, a little different now. We're, on, we're under confinement much more than you guys are. I mean, we are on strict lockdown. I mean, not as much as it was before, but... Uh, yeah, I like. Yeah, I mean, it's just to live for two and a half years in, in the south of France is not bad for <laughs> a kid from the. Uh, for the. I mean, let's get real uh, from that side of D.C. So, but well, I, yeah, I, a kid I, from the hood in uh, D.C. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So can't really complain, and uh, you know, so it's been. Um, yeah, so I wanted to, and the, and the reason I wrote the book was to really get some t- redemption and some sort of closure. And I wrote in the book, I think the dedication says that the first copy would be placed because she's buried at uh, Arlington National Cemetery. And uh, nice. it was, you know, we had everything. I mean, just some of the stories from, you know, King Kong and Planet of the Apes, things that as a child you had no idea the racial undertones that some older black people saw in those type things. And it was just, it was, it was, it was, yeah, we had... Quite a quite a number of uh, interesting stories to say the least. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Yep. No, 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 no. Ray, you're you're yep. wonderful, and and I'm um, really enjoying our conversation. Um, but I want to throw back to in the in the previous segment we were talking about the fact that you were biracial, but yet mm-hmm. uh, could very easily pass for white, and you were living in uh, in the hood in the blackest city in America at the time. How did the other kids um, react to you um, and going to school and so on? Well, it's interesting because, you know, you, you kids don't really see color necessarily, but because of the racial climate at that time, a lot of that uh, kind of trickled down from the older kids. But it wasn't until 1977, I remember it, it's, uh, I talk about it in the book, was when Roots came out. And Roots, January of 77, and, and the last episode was January 30th, actually my 10th birthday. And there was no celebration for sure. Now, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, we don't celebrate birthday. Well, that was the first one. I never <laughs> so my mother, and what, and what happened was my mother goes up to the school because she already knew as a librarian, she was kind of familiar with this story coming out. And ironically, Alex Haley's widow wrote the foreword to Black Sheep. My Haley, that's who writes the foreword. But she comes up to the school and serves notice that, listen, this boy's black. I don't care what you see on TV, on Roots. Uh, And she talked to the principal, she talked to the teachers, and said, I don't want any problems with my child. Now, she's nearly 50 years old at this time, as if she's going to come up there, (laughs) you know. And and so my sisters, I think, you know, one of them had already gone and so it, I think Roots was really an eye-opener at a time where kids were really, I mean, you had the normal fights, but if you went outside the neighborhood, you knew. The kids that didn't know you. Like, I tried to learn how to play the guitar, 
I can't really play because most of my fingers were broken from fighting, just trying to survive. And uh, I'm determined to still learn how to play. I learned how to play a couple of uh, uh, Just My Imagination, which is an easy one, and uh, Let It Be, I think, by the Beatles. And, but that, that was on the base. But point is, uh, you fought for your life. It was already tough enough if you were black, but this was a different dynamic. Well, and, and how was that dynamic different, Ray? Was this black kids picking on you because you looked white, or was it white kids picking on you because you were black? There were no white kids. They would not dare oh. be a white child. I mean, there was no, I, mean, I, I get it. I get it. City at, the, at the nth degree, you would not see, like I was saying earlier, that, I don't care if it's a bus driver, trash man, police, not on that side of town. So it wasn't until later until I went to another school across town when I interacted. I went to a military academy, and what had happened was I had gotten jumped. I got hit with brass knuckles, and it had broken my nose. There's like six kids jumped me, and, and, and so it was really – it was. I think I was 12 or 13 at the time. That was one of the worst – I mean, I, everybody got jumped. If you, you know, when I say jumped, that means more than two <laughs> get on you. Right. And, you know, so uh, – you know, we all have battle scars from D.C., but it was an extra dynamic if you were, if you looked white. I mean, that just added fuel to the fire and more reason, you know, uh, for kids to just, you know, to, to have at it. And so that it definitely made life a bit tough. At 19, when you left D.C. And, and went to New York briefly, what did you do while you were there? A, did you try to pass for white, and, and B, what did you do for a living? Oh, I worked at, well, initially what I did was worked at a car dealership, right? But then I run into an uncle who had gotten out of jail for bank robbery, then some friends in New York, and that's how I ended up in prison. Yeah? I didn't so, realize, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't realize about, how long were you in? Uh, almost two years. Yeah. I mean, I had gone in and out numerous times, but that didn't happen in New York. That happened in Los Angeles because what happened between New York and DC, hanging with unsavory characters, you, you know, they're getting shot at because people are looking for them. And I remember my mother told me, she said, you're going to end up dead or in jail or have a kid out of wedlock. Well, two out of three happened and I almost died on a number of occasions. So I ended up going, and it was just, it was a revolt, basically an eternal, I mean, I, you know, and that's when I first started studying the Bible, but I wasn't quite ready. I couldn't see myself as one of Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on the door. I just wasn't there, and I just had this racial identity. It was just, it was a bit much. And so I go to Los Angeles, and the same type of crimes that were done in New York and D.C. took place in Los Angeles. I end up in prison, and to this day, I never told my mother, that I went to prison. I couldn't break, I, I could not prove her right until the day she died, I never told her. She mm. wondered what happened, where I'd gone, but I could not prove her right and tell her that. And I was not determined to ever come back to her. And I think we hadn't seen, it, we didn't see each other maybe for four, four years maybe. And I just was so embarrassed and so ashamed that I had let her down that I didn't care about anything at that point. I just didn't care. And then the best thing that happened was one of the things she said that shouldn't happen was becoming a father. Because now, 
you know, that up the ante and you're like, like, okay, well, if I can't do anything for myself, I'm certainly not going to have this child looking at me like a loser. That's not going to happen. Because my dad was, you know, you know the song, Papa was a Rolling Stone. Well, that was him. He was Johnny Appleseed. He had kids all over the place, every complexion from black as ace of spades and as white as me. So what I did was eventually got everything together. Uh, and I really, really finally got it together, you know, got all the nonsense out of the way and decided to become a response because I was determined to make Lamel Studeman proud of me at some point, for sure. Did you feel going through all that that <clears throat> you really didn't belong on other on either side of the racial divide? Oh, yeah, for sure. And then when I went to prison in California, you're, you're segregated. Black, white, Mexicans, whites and Mexicans go together against blacks. And I remember the first, this is how, like two things happened in prison that I talk about in the story where the whites would play the blacks in basketball, like it had never beaten them for years. So I come in there. And I was, I'd learned, I'd play basketball on the streets. So I was pretty good, whatever. And when I led the white team over the black team in a victory, it was, you would have thought everyone got set free. But what happened was they ended up in a fight. And I remember, because I forgot where I was at and where I was from, I remember saying, and I was punching this dude, and I said, nigga, I will kill you. Now, if you're amongst the Aryan Brotherhood, the most ruthless white gang, and you call somebody a not we're not going to get into the A, G, R, and all that nonsense, but you can imagine, and I had to catch myself, because somebody asked me later, they said, hey, man, what did you call him? You know, and so you, I was really, I had to change the way I talked, because I was out of the hood. I mean, we're talking life and death now. Right. And I had to basically treat black inmates as if they were the enemy. And remember, I never, that was when I realized, wow, I'm so stressed. I mean, because if you make the wrong move, you walk the wrong way. And I remember a guy came up to me. I got transferred to another prison. This guy comes up to me. He was the leader of the white gang. He said, hey, listen, there's a guy back there that said he doesn't like you because you talk like a toad. Uh, I didn't know what a toad was. That was another racial <laughs> slur for, for black folks. I mean, I heard, he said, yeah, he doesn't like knuckle draggers. I, know, I said, knuckle dragger? Man, what? <laughs> <laughs> So I said, okay. So a lot of the fight, he said, you talk like a knuckle dragger, and you got to deal with that. So that's when I thought, wow, this is insane. And and so really, I was fortunate to come out of that situation barely alive. I mean, really. I mean, I just I had to fool these guys. And um, but um, again, uh, I think what was so funny was that I wrote the headquarters to Jehovah's Witnesses, and then they come and visit me. And I pretended, you couldn't tell them you had a religious study. I started studying the Bible again with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I said I would walk out with a manila folder. And I would say, because I saw these two white guys in blue suits, and I thought they were the feds. And I thought, oh, man, somebody done snitched. So I come out and study again, and I would tell everybody, yeah, those are my lawyers, whatever. But I always had this inkling towards the Bible. My mother just said, if you want to make you better study the Bible now. She wasn't excited about becoming one of Jehovah's Witnesses as a Baptist because she always said, you don't be knocking on my door at 7 in the morning talking about the Bible. But <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people who say that. Yeah, exactly. So it worked out. And then later she told me, she said, that's the best decision you made because at least you got your head in the Bible. Because, you know, a Southern black woman, 
I mean, you know, Jesus is her best friend, you know, day in and day out. So it all worked out. But um, she, I think she rooted out a lot of um, the, <laughs> I think the problem was on my birth, back to the black and white issue, she would always hold my birth certificate up. And she would always remind me because it was a game between her and I. If I used a word just out of fun, that I may, uh, it may be a three or four syllable word. I may not have had an idea what it meant. And she said, are you trying to be white? <laughs> and it was the running joke. But she said, so I would, you know, make fun and we would talk back and forth. And I remember one time I filled out a job application and the famous and some eyes infamous Marion Barry had a job program. So I filled out the job application. She comes in and she pushes me. She says, are you ashamed of your race? Because you had to check off a race, and I checked off white. I wanted to get a job. <laughs> so she reminded me constantly, don't think because you got blue eyes and straight hair that you're better than us. You're a Negro. And uh, she never wanted me to think. She says, you're not better than me by any stretch. And she always wanted to remind me of that. And we drew closer, I think, because of that. I think because she defended me in some cases where – People would, they, people would think she was the nanny, and she would say things like, excuse me, sir, can I, can I ask you a question? Um, if Darth Vader can be Luke Skywalker's dad, how come I can't be his mother? Just ask him. Those type things. <laughs> and, she would, and, she actually, and she would say, even in Hollywood and outer space, they've got a black man being a deadbeat dad. Because remember, Luke came back. I mean, Darth Vader comes back. And says, Luke, I'm your father. And that was the running joke in the house. Luke, I'm your daddy. You know, he comes back just like my father did, like 20 years later, light years later. Hey, I'm back. Well, I'm a grown man. Like, what do you mean? But she had fun with that. And uh, what was her other? Uh, she swore Babe Ruth was black. She's like any man that wears a meat coat, plays the saxophone, has a bell pepper nose, and has a chocolate candy bar. That's a Negro. That was her. <laughs> <laughs> Have you, as you've gotten older, Ray, have you mm-hmm. really kind of figured out a, a way to come to terms with you're just Ray and black and white doesn't matter? Um, it, it's, it's, I think living in Europe where it's not the polarizing issue it is in America has made it a lot easier. Um, I think even when I fly back to D.C., uh, it is what it is. I mean, you look like what you look like. But around family, there's never been any really problems. I mean, it's just that you, you still know that it's there because depending on how you talk, and I think the thing with me was that I had this game I learned to play when I was younger. Well, I had two games, but one was I had two <laughs> imaginary friends. One was black and one was white. That was to try to help me deal with this, this madness. But I was always testing people to see how they felt about, like I would meet whites, I'd work in a corporate office, and for the most part, I mean, I, I mean there were some who were racist, but they weren't overt, whatever. But I, I think for me, at 54 years old, pretty much come to grips with it. I mean, I'm, I'm content. I mean, I've made it this far, live a decent life, and it makes an interesting discussion. But the more people I've met, we've all got a story, no matter what it is. We've all got some sort of story. So I've pretty much come to, to grips with it. And, 
So to answer your question, yeah, it's um, yep. So yeah, I think I'm okay. I mean, it's still something I wouldn't wish on someone because it it's it's been sort of a curse sometimes. It really can be difficult. Yep. How long did it take to write this book? Uh, ten days. Really? I went to a cabin. Yeah, I went to a cabin. I talked to my agent. I said, "Listen, I need to get this off my chest." I was sitting on the waterfront. Right on the Riviera, Mediterranean, in these, uh, well, further down, going towards Monaco, and I couldn't stop crying. And I was so sad because I, I hadn't had a chance to really make things. My mom had only had been passed a couple months, and I go back to the States to get an extended visa. So my agent says, listen, come over with a plan. It's okay. I go up to a cabin in the mountains, lock the door take all of my favorite foods, everything, and after 10 days, I come out, and the most of it was done. I mean, there were some adjustments here and there, oh, sure. organizing, but for the most part, uh, prior to editing, it was, it was 10 days of therapy, unloading, unwinding, and giving Lamel Studeman what I felt was her, her, her just due and a voice to be heard. So, yeah, about 10 days was what it took. Ah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's so what's next for Ray? Well, <laughs> after this, uh, I mean, I, this kind of this this whirlwind about regarding this book has garnered so much attention that it's been a pleasant surprise for sure. And I know the mail would be uh, uh, pleased herself. So I'm probably going to spend the next few months just focusing on that. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, you know us. You know that's primary what we do. So we're going to continue to preach and. Uh, encourage people to read the Bible, and that's what I do now. I don't think that there there's been talk of a sequel because this is really a memoir about her. So depending on how this book goes, I don't know if I have it in me to because that was more therapeutic and dedication to her. <laughs> Spend another you know, ten days at the cabin. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. So I'll uh, yeah. So in the meantime, I'm going to. Um, to do that, and uh, there's talk of, I mean, my agent says there's, you know, interest in movies and film rights and things like that, so uh, we'll see how that goes, and then if that uh, sustains me financially, then I'll continue to be, uh, continue to stay here or, or move somewhere else, but, uh, you know, being being a witness, you know, it was, a, and, and, and like I say, years ago, raised a Baptist, if you would have told me at 54, I'd be knocking on doors as one of those witnesses, you out of your mind. But I've <laughs> been doing this for 20 years. A Richard Project's wife, you know, she grew up near us. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it's been a chance. It's just the world is crazy. I mean, it doesn't matter what denomination. It doesn't take, you know, uh, a stranger with a Bible at your door to tell you that, you know, the world is, is in, in a lot of trouble. And so I try to, and I wrote the book not expecting or hoping, I didn't have any illusions that it would, change the racial climate in America or anything like that, um, you know, but I tried to write it with a sort of an underlying comedic element, you know, where it's like, which, sure, that's a delicate, yeah, that's a delicate balance when you're dealing with race, you know, Ray, you, 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 you. I, I, I've got to cut you off because we're out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past, present and future. Do you have a website? Yeah, they can go to uh, com to get a preview of the book or the book will be available May 4th uh, on all out, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, 
uh, all the outlets. Uh, Goodreads. Well, Ray. Goodreads has a. Um, a giveaway now. I'm sorry. What's that? We got. We got to stop now. But Hello, may the force be with you. Take care. I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination: a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination. Freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? 
Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Fine, fine welcome. And it's certainly very gratifying to know that you feel this way and that you people have accepted my being able to sub for Johnny this week because it seems to have caused quite a bit of difficulty around here at NBC. Uh, earlier this evening, I was in Johnny's dressing room and one of the wardrobe mistresses walked by and she sticks her head in the door. She sees me and she says, What are you doing in Johnny Carson's dressing room? <laughs> Said if he catch you in here, this is the last time you're gonna be on this show. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very glad. <laughs> I'm very glad that you feel that. We'll, we will, during the course of the week, find some way to overcome her problem and firmly convince her that NBC, without a doubt, has established within everyone's mind that it is the full color network. <laughs> fun for me. It's this, this entire week is going to be fun. I've looked forward to it. And, uh, in fact, to stand here and act so cool, I'm excited. I'm not nervous. I'm excited. In the dressing room, I felt good. I was thinking, you know, just different ways of expressing the enthusiasm. And I was saying to myself, Woo! <laughs> well, it's made me think back. This is a long way from where I started. You know, I used to work in a drive-in movie. That's right, it was really rough. But it was fun. It was a hard job, but it was fun. I used to go around and shine the light in the car, tell people when the picture's over. <laughs> I got $25 a week and all I could see. <laughs> I'd walk around and say, the picture's over, the picture's over! <laughs> I tried a lot of things, I tried a lot of things. I feel that I'm prepared to assume the responsibility for well, this job, this is, well, this job is like, uh, I feel like this job is like being at a weenie roast with me being the weenie. <laughs> I just threw that in, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. I, I tried a lot of things. You know, coming along, I, uh, during my younger years, I tried, uh, I operated my own business. It was a lemonade stand, you know? And uh, it was doing pretty good. It, the way it went is I had a big sign over the lemonade stand called Flip's Lemonade, all you can drink for a dime. Well, that was great, and it was going along pretty well, but then you always run into a wise guy, you know? One day a guy comes up to the stand, he says, uh, is this lemonade as good as everybody says it is? And I said, you better believe it, this lemonade is just as good as what your mother used to make. And the guy said, hmm, that gotta be some very good lemonade. <laughs> I said, and in addition to that, I give you all you can drink for a dime can't beat that. See, let me tell you how I fix this lemonade. I put extra sugar in the glass so that when you turn the glass up to drink it, the lemonade starts swirling around and that makes the sugar swirl and lemonade gets sweeter as you go down. You know, as it goes down. Makes it taste better. And uh, then the lemonade is very cold. I put extra ice in the pitcher and then I pack the pitcher in the ice. And I said, yeah, that's all right. 
said, uh, give me a glass. So I gave him a glass, and uh, he said, I'll have another glass. I said, well, that'll be another dime. He said, now, hold on. He said, the sign says all you can drink for a dime. I said, but you had a glass, didn't you? And I said, yes. I said, well, that's all you can drink for a dime. <laughs> People caught on to that pretty quick, so I, I kind of cut the lemonade business to loose, and I've worked toward tonight. And uh, during the course, now let me see, things are going to be a little different with Johnny not here. The whole purpose of the show is fun. We're going to try to have as much fun, you know, but other things will be different, such as uh, during the course of my opening spot, I'll eliminate Johnny's genuine, authentic golf swing. We won't have that this week. No, I wouldn't infringe upon the man's right to open, you know, that, that's not... That's his swing. You know, I swing another way. I got my own way of <laughs> But uh, if, if Johnny's looking in tonight, I was thinking of some way. I don't play golf myself. Well, the ball is too small. If the ball was a little larger, I'd play. Uh, but in the elevator at the hotel I'm staying at, coming up on the elevator, I heard two guys discussing the game, and I thought it was a pretty amusing conversation. One fellow says to the other, he said, uh, say, George, he said, how's your golf game coming? George said, it's all right. It's all right. Well, I said, you should be pretty good. You and Freddie playing every other day. George said, look, said, don't mention Freddie's name to me. I said, I don't want to talk about Freddie. You understand? So don't bring his name up to me. Well, I said, but you and Freddie are such good friends. You guys play golf every other day. George said, well, not anymore. I said, well, what happened? I said, look, I said, do you want to play with a guy who cheats on the score? Want to play with a guy who cheats? A guy who, if he makes a hole in one, he's going to take off two? Do you want to play with you want to play with a guy who, who steals your clubs while you're watching the ball because somebody's already got your bag? <laughs> so do you want to play with a guy who run through the clubhouse yelling burn baby burn? <laughs> do you want to play with a guy like that? And the fellow said, heck no. He said, well, neither do Freddy. <laughs> This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
matter of fact. is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. And if you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah.
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 